Good morning, brothers. <clears throat> so nice to see you today. Somebody said this is a new hymn. How many, to, how many is this a new hymn for? God moves in a mysterious way. Hmm. All right. It's only been around since 1774, but uh, um, <clears throat> one that's worth knowing, William Cooper, um, was John Newton's best friend. John Newton was the slave trader who sold, who was sold slaves until he was converted and then became uh, a very uh, uh, important preacher in England and pastor, author, wrote a, another hymn I hope you've heard of, Amazing Grace. And uh, William Cooper wrote a whole lot more hymns than Newton did. And uh, William Cooper... But Cooper um, battled uh, severe depression and anxiety his whole life to the point that he had to move in with Newton and Newton took care of him until he died. <clears throat> and his faith is worked out powerfully in his hymnody. Uh, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood. Do you know that hymn? You're, ba you're a bunch of Baptists. You've got to know that hymn. That's a William Cooper hymn. And um, sometimes a light surprises. You probably don't know that one. That's my favorite of his. But describes uh, his uh, depression and God's often surprising him with the light of his grace. And, uh, and it's set, uh, it's the setting of Habakkuk 3. The, the vine tree, the vine, uh, uh, the fig withers and there are no cattle in the stalls and so forth, yet I will go on to the heights. But this one is his hymn about uh, providence. And it's appropriate for us today as we talk about prayer, expectant and earnest prayer. As you notice, he says um, in the second, um, uh, the third stanza, you fearful saints, he's one of them. Not looking down in his, his nose at him, he's one of them. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Well, <clears throat> I'm glad you. Uh, uh, heard that hymn. I hope you'll read over it and get to know it better, <clears throat> as well as the life of William Cooper. It'll encourage you. Let me turn your attention to Acts chapter 12, and uh, I've changed the text. If you are uh, overachievers and looked ahead and you've already studied and exegeted Ephesians 1, I'm sorry, but uh, I looked at that and thought, you know, that's essentially the same prayer that we studied in Colossians so I wanted to teach something new uh, that we had not, not cover ground that we had covered before. So <clears throat> with Todd's permission, I changed um, uh, to Acts chapter 12, which is uh, one of my favorite lessons on prayer. And I hope it's encouraging to you as well. Let me give you a little context about Acts 12. You probably know the book or basic story of Acts. <clears throat> but, of course, in, by chapter 2, Pentecost occurs and the gospel 
or the Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles and enables them to preach in a way that uh, everyone around them hears. And the, the, and the gospel goes, begins to go to the nations, which is uh, the, the prophecy that, that, the, that the, the gospel was not going to be just for the ethnic group of Israel, but it was going to break down those barriers across the world and go across the world to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So the nations were gathered there. They heard the gospel and they, and they went out and spread it. And uh, it uh, spread north, south, east, and west. The earliest converts were in Africa, Ethiopian eunuch and so forth. By the fourth chapter, by the seventh chapter of, of uh, Acts, the, uh, by the eighth chapter of Acts, the gospel has gone to what was then known to be the ends of the earth, to uh, Ethiopia and and uh, North Africa and, and um, to uh, other parts of Asia Minor. So the gospel is spreading rapidly. There's not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, of persecution, not an, in, a, in other words, not a systematic persecution yet. But in chapter 9, verse 31, we read, and things were peaceful. The church was at peace. That didn't last long as we read about now in chapter 12. Uh, here is definitely a frowning providence. These are clouds of doom that are settling down on the church for persecution and suffering. And uh, we pick up with the story in Acts chapter 12 and the way the church reacted. Let's begin reading. <clears throat> Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, uh, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you, follow me. He went out and followed him. He didn't know that it was being done by the angel. What was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Peter was always on the brighter side of things. 
When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they finally opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Obviously, this is not the James who was killed. This is James, the brother of the Lord. Now, when day came, <clears throat> there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered them that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let us pray together. <clears throat> Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold inspiring things from this portion of Scripture, things that would inspire us, that would upbraid us, that would exhort us, encourage us to pray, to pray earnestly and expectantly, to put our hope in God and not in man, to be a different people a people who actually changed the world as the disciples did and not those who are wringing their hands, uh, who turn on one another or who do nothing. Uh, but may we live at the forefront of your kingdom's advance by becoming those who wage war with prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. God's men said together, amen. <clears throat> One author I have enjoyed reading through the years was a uh, faithful Methodist pastor, Fred Craddock, probably was at Christ Methodist a number of times. He was a wonderful preacher. He taught uh, uh, homiletics at the Candler School of Theology at Emory for many years. Fred Craddock told a story in one of his books about, about a young minister who had just graduated from seminary, and it was uh, time for him to make his first hospital call. So he <laughs> went upon request to one of his parishioners' uh, hospital rooms and 
she was uh, in, in dire straits. She was very sick. She was, uh, she was in bed. She was very discouraged. He nervously came to her room and uh, sat down beside her, and uh, he said, uh, uh, Good evening, ma'am. Uh, what would you like me to do for you? She rolled her eyes and said, well, I called for you as the pastor. What else are you supposed to do? I want you to pray for me. He said, <clears throat> cleared his voice and sat down and said, uh, well, okay, uh, well uh, what, what would you like me to pray for you? Oh, my goodness. She thought I'm having to pray, train this new preacher uh, anyway. She said, well, what else? I want you to pray that God would heal me. I'm sick. I think I'm dying. I want you to pray for God to heal me. Okay, so he, he, he stumbled through his prayer, held her hand, prayed, prayed that God would heal her. And then if he didn't, you know, if it's your will, help her to be comfortable and so forth. But got through with the prayer and said amen and was preparing to leave. And she sat up in bed. She breathed uh, to the bottom of her lungs. She said, I'm healed. I'm healed. I think it worked. She jumped out of bed. She ran up and down the halls. I'm healed. I'm healed. God healed me. I, my pastor prayed for me and he healed me. And, and uh, praise the Lord. Finally, he, he, he said goodbye to her. He stumbled down the stairs, found his way, holding the handrail. He could barely, his eyes were fluttering. He couldn't focus. He f made his way out to the car. He fumbled for his keys. And as soon as he got in and closed the door, he said, don't you ever do that to me again. Isn't that the way we often pray? We pray, but not really expecting God to do anything. We give Him all kinds of opportunities to, to get out, all kinds of exit clauses, don't we? But here we see the New Testament church praying earnestly, that's good, but not expectantly. And both are what we are invited to earnest and expectant prayer because of the God to whom we are praying. God who advances His kingdom by prayer. Paul said you have weapons that are more powerful than any other, powerful enough to bring down strongholds and dominions. We study the Bible. We see that uh, prayer caused the sun to stand still. Prayer, prayer caused uh, angels to defeat uh, armies that were better equipped than those of Israel's. Prayer healed. Prayer converted. And if we think through our lives and uh, ask, what has God done in our lives? We must conclude God has done mighty works by prayer. Well, let's look at this text and see what it has to offer for encouragement for us in our prayer lives. And the first point is that the text, by example, positive example, calls us to pray earnestly. <clears throat> uh, the, the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, frequently encourages us to pray with importunity, the old folks would say, the importunate widow, to pray fervently. Now, isn't that what works with your children? Or hasn't it worked with your children? How many times have... Uh, have you answered your child when they say, would you please get me a birthday present? You barely hear the whisper or just say something in passing, but our children know better. 
Would you get me a birthday present? Would you get me a birthday present? Would you get me a Would you get me a birthday present? Present, 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 present. That's importunity. That's fervency. Now, it doesn't mean that the, the Lord requires that, but the Lord does want to know that we are earnest in seeking Him, seeking His answers, rather than just putting Him in a queue with any other, any other possible person or force who could help us. Think about how the Bible makes that point that God actually, that, that God is so insistent that we come to Him in fervent desire for relationship, for fervent desire to see Him act, a, a fervent conviction that He is the only one who can answer. He sometimes creates needs to force us to it. Remember chapter 9, verse 31? The church was at peace. Now, I'm sure prayer was going on. We know the apostles were praying. We read that in, in chapter 2 and other places. But uh, this is the first time we see the church at prayer. And uh, maybe it's unfair to say, but, but uh, this much is sure. It's, it's fairly common human experience, isn't it, that we don't pray fervently until we recognize we have a real need. And because we believe, because the Bible teaches that, the God, that God is sovereign, sovereign over all history, foreordains everything that comes to pass, then it's not so unreasonable to think that God creates needs in our lives to force us to that place that is healthiest for us and which, by which we'll most uh, dramatically advance the kingdom of God, and that is through fervent prayer. Just think about Scripture, Isaiah 62, for instance. He says, uh, I have effectively brought you to this place of need so that you would give yourself no rest and give me no rest until Jerusalem is once again a light for the nations. Jerusalem had become self-absorbed. They had become intoxicated with their politics, their lust for power. They worshipped other gods. And so God said, I'm going to take you into exile in Isaiah. And, and I'm going to do that, not just because I enjoy punishing people. I'm going to do that so I can move you back to a place of health and vibrancy and thriving. And that's going to start with prayer. And prayer is going to, you're going to be moved to prayer by recognizing your need. Luke chapter 11 verses 5 to 8 is another uh, passage about um, fervency in prayer. Remember the, the man in the middle of the night who, who had some guests show up and he needed three loaves of bread and, and his wife didn't have any so he went to his neighbor's house and he knocked on it, and the neighbor said, go away, I'm, a, I'm asleep, you know. And the man kept knocking and knocking and knocking. You can hear the dogs waking up. You can hear the neighbors shouting next door. But he's not going to let go. He's not going to quit knocking until he gets those three loaves of bread because he doesn't want to go home and have his wife kill him. He's less afraid of the neighbors than he is of his wife. He's going to go home with that bread. And so he knocks and knocks and knocks. And Jesus said... 
That man has the fervency, had the fervency that we must have in prayer. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Remember the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus and said, My daughter has a demon. I want you to cast him out of her. <clears throat> and, and Jesus, not being mean, but testing, providing a, a teaching opportunity, said, what, uh, Why should I give what is intended for the Israelites to Canaanite dogs? She didn't let go of him. She kept persisting. And she said, well, even dogs eat the crumbs out of the master's table. Even your crumbs are more powerful than demons. Jesus said he did that to reveal her faith. She just kept knocking. She held on to Jesus. Luke chapter 18, remember the, the, the woman who came to the unjust judge. <clears throat> she asked him again and again for justice and he kept turning her away. But because of her importunity, King James Version said, he granted her request. But then Jesus went on to say, if an unjust judge will render aid, will answer someone because of their persistence, how much more will your heavenly Father? You see, the point is not that God is hard-headed and, uh, and He makes us uh, beg uh, to, to get anything from Him, that He manipulates us in that way. No, God is eager to answer our prayer. But He is also a Father. And He doesn't appreciate any more than we do of being asked for something uh, on the fly, just being used, having a transactional relationship. He wants us to come to Him as children with earnestness to say, Father, You are the only one who can help me. Please answer my need. Samuel Rutherford, the old Scottish reformer, said, Go on, pray on. The Lord holdeth the door fast, fast bolted, that we may knock and knock, and knock. Well, second point uh, in regard to earnest prayer I want to make is that God moves us. Yes, He creates needs, but He moves us to earnestness uh, by giving us those needs. He moves us to earnestness, as I said before, because, or alluded to before, He wants a real relationship with us. He creates needs in our lives so that we might be drawn to His knee, some old writer used to say. The Father wants us drawn to His knee. He doesn't want just a phone call. He doesn't want just a text. He doesn't want just a, a passing request. He wants us to come to Him as His child. You know, it's like this. You could feed your children or you could have fed your children by, you know, uh, hiring someone to bake a bunch of those casseroles and put them in the freezer and mark them one day at a time and say, here are the microwave instructions. Just, just warm it up and you never have to ask me for another thing. Or you could put something in, the, you know, you could create a kind of ATM in your home. When you need money, you just punch in the number. And you'd have to regulate it, of course. Uh, but <clears throat> you just get the money when you, 
when you want it. But that's not what we want. We want our children to come to us with their needs because we love them. We love supplying their needs. And we love doing so in the context of a relationship. And the father is no different. He's not, uh, he's not a bellhop. He's not a, a waiter. He's not, a, he's not like a slot machine. You pull the handle and you, get, you, get, and you, you take your chances and you hope you get something and occasionally you get a payout. He is a heavenly father who sent his son in order to make us sons. And so when he draws us to his knee by suffering, by need, by deprivation, by causing us to wait for a time, it's because he wants us as much as anything. So he creates need in order to move us to earnestness, and then when he answers, he answers primarily with himself. It's, <clears throat> he just doesn't dispense the healing. He doesn't just give you the money. He doesn't just um, fix the problem at work. He wants to do it in such a way that even if the answer is not exactly the way you envision, your relationship with the Heavenly Father is more than it ever could have been before. Because here's the truth. When you're truly convinced that God is your heavenly Father, when you know that He is your Father, and He's a good Father, and He will do nothing except that which is best for you, and that you can trust Him with every detail of your life and every detail of human history because He is causing all things to uh, be coordinated to the praise of His glorious grace, and the perfection of your conformity to the beautiful image of His Son. When you are convinced that that is the kind of heavenly Father you have, then every problem you have, I have, will either be solved, it won't be a problem anymore, or at least will be put in its proper perspective. It'll take away the frantic nature of the Christian life. It'll take away your anger. It'll take away your panic. It'll take away your manipulative tendencies. It'll take away your, the pressure you feel to make a name for yourself. It'll take away the, 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 the desperation you feel when, when things don't seem to be going the way you want them to go. When you can say, you are my father, I am your child. What I'm experiencing here is painful. It's disorienting. It's, it's agonizing. My heart is breaking, but I know I'm your child. I remember going through a situation uh, over a decade ago, and, <clears throat> and it was the most panicked I had ever been. You were probably, it had to do the, with the economy, and I imagine there were a number of you feeling a similar way. And I 
remember trying to get myself together to focus on preaching that morning. And I was asking the Lord to come through, and I'd been asking Him to come through, and, <clears throat> and I had this passage come to mind. The, the, the passage in Luke, Luke 12, where Jesus tells His, it's parallel to Matthew 6, and Jesus is telling His, his disciples, don't worry, be anxious for nothing. Look at the birds of the sky and, and the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field and so forth. But in Luke, there's a slightly different twist. It is, fear not, little flock. Matthew doesn't say that. And I'm sure Jesus had to say, don't worry, on a number of occasions. But in this one, he said, fear not, little flock. Your father knows you have these needs. Food, shelter, clothing. And I was able to latch on to those three words. Your father knows. Your father knows. My situation didn't change overnight, but my perspective on my situation changed immediately. I wasn't as panicked. I wasn't worried. I saw no way forward in that situation. But when I could hear, your father knows, George, your father knows, I was able to rest. God did provide in ways I never could have predicted. That's the way he loves to work. Well, the church here is praying earnestly. We read that in the text. They're praying earnestly. But they're not praying expectantly. <clears throat> Verses 8 to 25, there is no expectation uh, by anyone that God is going to hear these prayers. Beginning with Peter. Peter, you know, is, is here sleeping. And uh, the angel comes and stands next to him. The light shines in the cell. Now, maybe Peter is such a sound sleeper, but... Um, and uh, maybe it reflects that he was so confident in the, in the care of God that he was sleeping soundly. But there's indication later in the text that he just didn't believe. You know, I'm having a dream and um, um, I'm going to sort of ride out the dream, see what happens. So the angel humorously strikes him in the side. He punches him in the side. Wake up! Well, now what do I do? Put your clothes on. Put on your shoes and put your cloak on. It's going to be cold outside and follow me. Oh, Peter's dragging around. Oh, what a dream. This is quite a dream I'm having. Then the gate opens. They walk past the guards. You know how heavily they're guarded. Peter is a, is a high-prized uh, 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 captive. And he walks past the guards, past the iron, the iron gate opens for him. And it's not until uh, he's down in the streets that he realizes, oh, this is not a dream. Now, it, we may be getting, maybe I'm too hard on Peter. But it is certainly true of us, can be true of us, that sometimes we become sleepy in our confidence in God's sovereignty. 
it's not really a confidence in God's uh, biblical, biblical confidence in God's sovereignty. Uh, it's, it's more fatalism. What's going to happen is going to happen. I might as well just give in to it. You can hear it in some of our prayers. Imagine if we were praying for Peter in prison. It's the way we, we tend to pray for people in prison. Um, being held for their, for their faith. Uh, Lord, Peter's in prison, and uh, we pray that you would help him to sleep well at night. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd help him get uh, some nourishing food and uh, keep him comfortable. And, uh, and uh, it, you know, if, if, you, if you were to choose to let him out, that would be great. But even if you don't, we pray that if he's condemned to die, that it'll be quick and painless and you'll get him to heaven uh, without much incident. Now, Peter might be, if he hears those prayers, he might be like the woman in the hospital. What do you think I'm asking you to pray for? Don't pray that I die gently. Pray that I have healed. But we, we give God all kinds of ways out, don't we? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would heal Sister Susie Q. But even if you don't, even if her cancer progresses, and she will make it go quickly, painlessly, help her to have good hospice and a nice funeral service. We pray earnestly, perhaps, but not expectantly. So what happens when the church is praying that way? Well, they're not expecting anything, so when the answer comes, they don't even recognize it. Peter comes to the door. He knocks on the door. They're earnestly in prayer. You can see them. You know, they're down there on their knees. They're pouring out their hearts for God to help Peter. They're probably praying more for themselves. Don't let us get persecuted. Don't let us get thrown in jail. Rhoda, housekeeper, I'm going to try to keep things. Somebody's knocking at the door. Goes and sees. She sees it's Peter. She's surprised. She runs back. She doesn't even let him in. He knocks again. She goes back. Oh, it's not. It is Peter. It's not a ghost. Then she comes back and announces it to the others. And what do they say? Don't disturb us. We're praying for Peter to get out of prison. You're crazy. He wouldn't actually be here. We're about to give God an out. We're about to say, so we're going to say, let him get out of prison. But even if he doesn't, you know, help him to not feel so lonely. We must pray expectantly. We need to pray like this. Lord, command attention for yourself. What happens here? No one can deny that the only way Peter got out of prison was the Lord. The Lord allowed them. The Lord loves it, see, when all the odds are against them. The Lord allowed Herod to put that heavy guard around him. Why don't you put another... Why don't you put another one? Hey, how about a fourth one? Put a fourth garrison around him. Just make sure he's extra secure. Put him in top security because I'm going to blast him out of that jail and I want you to be sure that it's me. Learn to pray like that. Lord, the odds are stacked against us. Lord, it's dangerous in this city. Lord, there's no hope for cure for 
poverty. Lord, there's no hope for cure for our nation. We're insecure. There's no hope for Sudan. Oh, Lord, get a name for yourself. Do something that makes it clear that you are the king of this universe. Make it clear that you're the king of kings and lord of lords and no one can raise his fist against you and say, I am the sovereign and it doesn't matter what the Lord wants or wills. I am in control. Oh Lord, command attention for yourself. Even if that means we suffer for a little while. Even if that means we live in fear for a while. We, Lord, your children, want your name to be great. The Puritans had a practical way of encouraging their, their people to pray like this. And it was um, often called, uh, uh, get a return on your, they'd say things like, get a return on your prayers or, or uh, keep records so that there's open recompense. What they meant by that is, they were trying to teach their people. They are just teaching their people to pray. The, the, the people before the Reformation thought that prayer was for the pastors and the priests. And uh, so they asked them to pray for them and they just trusted that they were doing the work. The Reformers were saying, no, you know, God has made every one of you a priest. He wants you to pray. He pushes His kingdom forward by your prayers. So we want you to learn to pray in a way that you understand you are part of the forward movement of the kingdom. You participate in it. And so they, they taught this, they taught something like this. They said, keep a record of your prayers. Keep a journal. Keep a, you know, just like you do in your, in your businesses. Put your, put your, um, Put your prayer request on the debit side of the ledger because God invites you to pray and says, if you pray in my name, I'll answer. So he's making himself a debtor to you. So put, their, put your request on the debit side. And when he answers, give him credit for it. Or Sometimes they would say, write him a receipt. And they would teach our congregation, you know, God demands a receipt. If God's going to pay his debts, he wants to see a receipt. It wasn't a matter of being legalistic that this is the way you have to pray. This is the way you, you have to journal and so forth. But it's a, it's, a, it's a great way for us to recognize the Lord working in our lives because here's what often happens. I've had this many times in the pastorate. Somebody's come to me with a big problem and we say, well, let's pray about it. And we pray about it, and then I ask him later, what happened? You know, you had that, uh, you had that problem at work, you had that impossible boss, and, uh, and it was a miserable situation at work, and we prayed about it. What happened? Oh, it, it, uh, it all worked out. The boss above him fired him, and uh, everything's fine now. What about prayer? Oh, yeah, oh, we did pray about that, didn't we? And the, the credit goes to somebody else. That's the way we do too. Oh, Lord, heal me of this disease. Hey, are you feeling better? Yeah, I took this new medication, and I'm feeling a lot better. No, we prayed about it first. So if God's going to make himself a debtor to say, bring to me your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God, I'll supply these things for you. If God's going to make himself a debtor to us, he demands a receipt. 
when he pays. Keep a record of your prayers. As you go to bed at night, make a journal of thanksgiving, a journal of prayer requests, and then, and then mark them off as God answers them in all kinds of ways you would not expect. Well, I think I've told this story before in a sermon, but maybe those of you uh, who are newer to us haven't heard, but I love this, this story of George Mueller, who the, 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 uh, the man of, in Bristol, England, who in the 1800s started uh, orphanages that took care, at, at their peak, they were taking care of 2,100 orphans per day. And over the course of his ministry, that uh, spanned worldwide. He, he supported 189 missionaries. He, he sent out 4 million tracts, gospel tracts all over the world. He raised $7.5 million in the early 1800s over the course of his 60-year career, which is monumental, and he raised it all just by prayer. He wanted to be clear that it was the Lord who provided all the needs and the Lord got all the credit. It was an important thing for Mr. Mueller never to be late to an appointment when he made, a, uh, when he made an engagement, of, uh, meaning an appointment uh, around the world somewhere. He began to travel in his latter days and tell the story of God's miraculous supplies and urge people to pray. So he had an engagement in Quebec and uh, he was to be there uh, on a certain day and uh, the... Um, the ship he was on was stalled. It was stalled in the fog. There was a Christian captain who was uh, steering the ship and the captain was up on the crow's nest just uh, leaning on the, on the rail waiting for the fog to clear. And Mr. Mueller went up and said, uh, uh, I need you to get the ship going because I'll be late. And so I can't, in case you can't see, the fog is so thick it's dangerous to go, for us to go forward. We're stuck here until it clears. Mr. Mueller said, uh, then, uh, then what are we going to do about it? Well, there's nothing I can do about it. What are you going to do about it, Mr. Mueller? He said, well, I know this. I've never in 57 years missed, a, missed an engagement that I've promised to. I believe the Lord has called me to this. So if you can't get me there, I will apply for some other locomotion. But what he meant was, I'm going to go down and pray for it. He went down to the captain's chart room. The captain followed him. And uh, Mr. Mueller got on his knees and prayed. And uh, uh, the captain said, uh, said, uh, said this, may I join you in prayer? And he said, uh, no, no, you don't need to pray. For one, no need for you to play, pray because you don't believe in the first place. And secondly, there's no need for you to pray because I believe the fog is already lifted. Let's go out and see. Well, here's the way the captain tells the story. I looked at him, and Mr. Mueller said to me, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you'll find the fog is gone. I got up, and the fog was gone on Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec, and he said, the captain, I have never been the same since. Well, 
We're not talking about name it and claim it. We're not talking about some magical, manipulative way to get your way with God. We're talking about a God who loves us, a Father who loves us, who controls all things and wants us to pray to Him earnestly with affection and expectantly praying that He would get a name for Himself. Let's pray that way. Let's begin right now. Oh, Lord, we ask you to forgive us for our small faith. Forgive us for uh, accepting the status quo, just accepting the way things are, becoming more bitter or cynical or secular or pragmatic or hopeless or doubtful or even angry. We ask, O Lord, that you would, this moment, give us a fresh view of not just your greatness, yes, impress us afresh, that you are the great God before whom the nations are but a drop in the bucket, the one who spoke and worlds came into being, the one who parted seas, created all there is. Yes, give us the impression of how great you are. But even more, give us the biblical impression that you are a great father, one who is sovereign and in control of all things and therefore unhindered in his loving and redemptive purposes. Help us, Father, afresh to fall into your arms and in earnest joyful affection, pray for what your spirit uh, compels us to pray and then to pray with expectation. Yes, using sanctified imaginations to envision how you would answer our prayer, but being totally open to answering in a way we could never fathom, maybe even a way that initially disappoints us, but we know because we know you are our Father. It is for the best, for your kingdom purposes. Oh, Lord, make us different people today by the way we focus on you. And as a result, pray earnestly and expectantly. In Jesus' name, God's men men said, amen.